1: Today, on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
2: It desires to dominate you, but Cain, you must master sin. Now, you insert that same idea in Genesis 3.16, and that's exactly what God is saying in this sense. He's saying literally, ladies, that you will have a tendency, there will be a desire to dominate your husband. You will want to rule over him. You will want to control him. But God says, in fact, in his order of structure within the family, your husband is to be over you. This is when God introduces loving leadership into the family structure here. This is Cornerstone Connection,
1: the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the book of Genesis. Today, Pastor Gary will be explaining the roles God has established for husband and wife. Everything the Lord establishes and says is good. The devil will always try to pervert and say it's bad. Since God said man is the head of the woman... The devil tempts woman to lead over man and tempts men to become complacent and lazy. Whenever you see an ordinance of God established, you can bet on the devil to try to oppose it. Just look at today's society. Children are disrespectful to parents. Gay marriage is legal. And women are running the household. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part two of today's message entitled, Reverse the Curse.
2: Can you imagine a day when there was no need for an epidural? There were no contractions, no intense labor, no... None of that... None of that. No no. in the moment cursing your husband because he got you into this mess. None of that. It was supposed to be originally a pain-free experience, sort of like dispensing soft-serve ice cream. That's what it was supposed to be like. <laughs> I came out vanilla, right? <laughs> and that's, that's the way apparently it was supposed to be. Now, unfortunately, you can blame Eve for all the child pains that you have in giving birth. But it's interesting to note that the word pain is used twice in verse 16, and it's a Hebrew word that can also be translated sorrow. What it tells us is that there will not only be physical pain in childbirth, but there will also be emotional sorrow in this whole area. There will be emotional pain too. It's part of the joy and also part of the distress. Having children is not only physically painful, but also raising children, investing in their lives, caring for them, worrying about them, crying over them, being anxious about them. Those kind of things lead to some emotional pain too. It can be sorrowful. Being a mom is both joyful and uh, it is painful. It is rewarding and it is troubling at times. And yet, in spite of the fact that it has its challenges... For the most part, children will be the longing of every woman's heart. Children will be the longing of every woman's heart. And where there is infertility and miscarriage and unplanned pregnancies, it's some of the most difficult and painful things that a woman goes through. So much of her thoughts and dreams and desires and joys as well as her stress, her frustration, her sorrows, her pain, emotional and physical, revolve around children, motherhood. Um, it's the same in marriage, it's the other part of verse 16. There's a combination of fulfillment and frustration in marriage it's both joyful and frustrating and some of you ladies are thinking i'm sitting next to mr frustration right now thank you very much i don't mean it that way i just mean the bible talks about how there's going to be some more difficulties in this area as a result of the fall so this is the other part of verse 16 look at the other part of verse 16 god says to her your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you And here's the way, ladies, as far as I understand it, what I've come to understand, I asked my wife about this just last night. I said, is this true? Because I begin to observe this, and for the most part, not every woman, but for the most part, this is true. Something happens, ladies, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, when you turn 15 or 16, and some switch happens in a girl's head. And all of a sudden, she starts dreaming of her wedding. She starts thinking about the wedding day. She starts getting it all planned in her head. She's picking out her bridesmaids. She's got the colors and the patterns down. She's got the floral arrangement. And even some ladies make scrapbooks on these things. Were any of you scrapbook ladies about your wedding just before you got married? Anybody willing to admit? Yeah, I was a scrapbook lady. I was a scrapbooker. Huh? Nobody? Yeah, right. Yeah, I've seen them. Now, my wife wasn't into all of that. She, was, she didn't really think much about it till later in life, till just before we were married. I guarantee you, you know when the first time a man thinks about his marriage, about a wedding day itself and the ceremony, you know the first time he thinks about it? The first time he thinks about it is when he's engaged and she brings out the scrapbook she's been writing since she was 16. <laughs> wow how am i supposed to live up to this that's why most ladies when you get into marriage it's a very kind of a ooh, it's just a wonderful thrilling thing in your head and it's like taking off in an airplane you're just like oh i'm gonna get married oh this is so wonderful and you're cruising you're gaining altitude you're at about thirty-six thousand feet and then you get married and <laughs> you're like what happened what what in the world happened and that's why most of the times ladies think their marriage is more trouble than guys do now you can interpret that one of two ways Either because the guy didn't get it, he didn't get how messed up the marriage is, but you finally have your head together enough that you can see the truth and he just doesn't. Or, it may not be always as bad as you think. That sometimes maybe this great ascent and then this crash and burn thing, you begin to think, oh no, it's not turning out the way I'd hoped. Because we can't live up to the scrapbook. That's the problem. (laughs) That's the problem. There's no human being on earth who can live up to the scrapbook. But the deal is that what happens here is, yeah, I'm talking to you, aren't I? But there's going to be this, it's like motherhood and children. The issue of being a wife can also carry with it its uh, shares, its times of joy and excitement and fulfillment and other times of disappointment and frustration And notice what the Lord says to her as part of this. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, the first part of that sounds really nice, doesn't it? Your desire will be for your husband. Your longing will be for your husband. It's not intended to be a nice thing that God is saying here. Let me show you where the same phrase is used in the Hebrew in chapter 4 of Genesis, and you get a better idea of the context of what that statement means. In chapter 4, it deals with Cain and Abel. And this is when Cain and Abel are presenting their offerings to the Lord, and Abel brings an offering from the sacrifice of the flock. Cain brings an offering from the uh, vegetation. And Cain's offering is not accepted by God, and Abel's is. And Cain gets all worked up and angry about it, and the Lord confronts him about it here in chapter 4, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And then here's the phrase, it desires to have you, but you must master it. It's the same Hebrew phrase used in Genesis 4-7 as in Genesis three sixteen. Now you get the connotation better in chapter 4, don't you? It's the idea that what Cain was guilty of was, God says to, to Cain there in chapter 4, sin is crouching at your door, it desires to have you. It desires to master you. It desires to control you. It desires to dominate you. But Cain, you must master sin. Now, you insert that same idea in Genesis 3.16, and that's exactly what God is saying in this sense. He's saying literally, ladies, that you will have a tendency, there will be a desire to dominate your husband. You will want to rule over him. You will want to control him. But, God says, in fact, in his order of structure within the family, your husband is to be over you. This is when God introduces loving leadership into the family structure here. So it's not intended to be a good thing here. Now some of you think to yourself, I don't know that I dominate my husband. If I could just humbly um, offer you four examples of how sometimes, sometimes even unknowingly, wives tend to dominate their husbands. One way is through nagging. Nagging wears a man down, and eventually he will give in. And you know that, don't you? If nagging doesn't work, a second tool is crying. Turn on the waterworks, get crying, and a man usually will want you to get your way in whatever it takes because he wants the crying to stop. And then a third way that sometimes ladies can dominate and control their husband is by manipulating them through sex. It's that you withhold or you give depending on if he's a good boy or a bad boy. And the fourth way sometimes ladies can dominate their man is by marrying dumb. That you have chosen to marry a dumb guy because you know that you can push him around and he will not know the difference. And some of you guys are sitting there going, is that me? Are you referring to me? Probably. Yeah, probably. If you have to ask that, probably. So be very, very careful there. Be very, very careful. Now, this is the other part of verse 16 where he says, and he will rule over you. This is where God calls loving leadership. This is where he calls men to step up, be courageous, masculine, godly, spiritual leaders of their homes. This whole text is what Paul uses to develop the whole text of the structure of the family in the New Testament. It's from this passage right here in Genesis 3. What God wants of us men is for us to not be passive, lazy, or Uh, uninvolved but he wants us to be attentive he wants us to be loving he wants us to pray for our wives he wants us to step up and give loving leadership in the home to protect our family to take our wives by the hand with one hand men and with the other hand god wants us to wield the sword of the spirit to slay the dragon that wants to take over our family that's what god wants that's what she wants too and that's what we're called to be about now, obviously, let me say this, because I may not have clarified myself as well last week. If you're a single mom, and you're raising kids, and you're all on your own, obviously, you have to step up to spiritual leadership. It's up to you. You're, you're, you're the, you're the, you are the head of the house. You're a, you're a single mom raising kids. You have to be a spiritual leader in your home. The, the, those of you ladies in the most difficult spot are those of you who are godly women, and you're married to godless men. You're in the most difficult spot because you have a fine line to walk of introducing spiritual influence in the home without usurping spiritual authority of the home. It's a very difficult spot. You need to be praying. You need to be appealing to God. You need to be appealing to your husband's authority and asking the Lord to work through your husband's life so that he would step up to be a spiritual leader and a godly man in the home. But until he does, resist the urge to step into that place because most men aren't going to want to fight their wives over territory. And if you step in and assume that spiritual role of leadership, he's just going to become passive and let you do it. It's a very fine line then of having to bring spiritual influence and a godly presence in the home without usurping spiritual authority. So it's tricky there. Uh, you're in the most difficult spot. We pray for you. Pray for your husband. Pray to the Lord and appeal to his higher authority. But ladies, I think you would agree with me that marriage and motherhood, marriage and motherhood, motherhood and marriage, those are the dominant themes in women's magazines. You go through the checkout lane of a grocery store, what adorns the cover of most every woman's magazine? Something about marriage, something about motherhood. It is incredible how much a woman's life is about motherhood and marriage, and it's a God-ordained thing, but it can also be a source of frustration as well as fulfillment, because it's part of the result of the fall. Now, moving on to the men. In verse 17, this is what we read. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. And before I read further, let me clarify, gentlemen. He's not saying it was a sin that Adam listened to his wife. Don't go home and say, I don't have to listen to you anymore. I don't have to listen to you anymore, honey, because see, what God said here is because you listened to your wife and then you ate, so I'm not listening to you anymore. Don't do that, okay? Um, What the Lord is saying here is because you listen to your wife instead of listening to me. There's an art, man, where we have to learn to have one ear to our wives and one ear to the Lord. Uh, Your wife has a lot of wisdom and a lot of good advice that probably if you listen to more of, you and I would be spared some of our own difficulties that we go through because we don't listen to her enough. And so he's not saying you don't listen to your wives. He's saying, listen to me supremely. So when our wives speak into our lives, we have to pass it through the grid of what God says to make sure we're honoring God first. Adam's fault was he listened to his wife only. He does not listen to God. He did not obey God. And so God pronounces this upon him. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, you know, right now some of you ladies might be thinking, well, there's nothing in there about his longing for me or for the kids. I know, it's very work-oriented, isn't it? It's very work-oriented, and for a reason. Because God made men with a desire and a capacity for productivity. This is not something new after the fall. Don't think for a moment, guys, that part of the punishment is work. Oh, that's why I have to go to work now. It's part of the fall. Thanks a lot. No, no, no. Listen up, Wall Street protesters. It's good to work, and it's good to be productive. Don't envy somebody else's success. Get to work yourself. Be productive. God ordained it before the fall. Take a quick glance back to chapter 2, verse 15. This is even before the fall. I want you to see how God put this into the heart of man. Chapter 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, here's the difference. Originally, work was intended to be supplemental and enjoyable. It's fulfilling. It's fun. It's, it's important. It's good. It's It's fulfilling. The curse here, or the consequence for Adam, is that now, basically, it's the working conditions that are going to be his burden. Work is going to become toilsome, burdensome. It's going to become stressful. Uh, And it's going to be that your work is never done. You're going to constantly feel this pressure of getting the work done, and it's never done. It's painful at times, toilsome. It's very fulfilling, Uh, but it's not always as uh, rewarding as we might like. It's interesting. Think about it. Men draw significant satisfaction from the work that they do. Um, It is interesting to note, and ladies, you may not necessarily understand the depth of a man's heart on this issue unless he's willing to be vulnerable and explain it to you. So let me kind of peel back the cover and let you know. When a man loses his job for whatever reason, he's laid off or he's fired or his business fails, it is terribly devastating to a man. He may not let on, but when a man doesn't have work and we, when he's out of work, it's, it's so connected to his own psyche and his own sense of worth. Now, I understand, look, I'm a pastor, I get, that all of our worth, men and women, kids, youth, all of our worth should ultimately come from the Lord. He's our supreme source of why we are worthy and we're only worthy because of Jesus. I get that. But there is some parts of our very core as men where it, it is integrated with the sense of accomplishment, purpose, and productivity. And when that isn't happening, there's a sense of loss. There's a sense of grieving. There's a sense of, of, a, um, of an unworthiness. And so, ladies, I would just encourage you, be sensitive to your husbands or men that you know if they're out of work. Um, it's not that it is something that is less dignifying, but it is a sense that is perceived in the heart of a man working, producing, providing are all part of the way a man is wired. It's interesting to note, when men meet other men for the first time, what's one of the first questions that they will ask? What do you do? What do you do? When women meet women for the first time, one of the first questions they ask is, where'd you buy that? But anyway, <laughs> we don't get that, but that's okay. You don't, you don't get why we ask, what do you do? And we don't get why you ask, where'd you buy that? That's beautiful. But anyhow, so... It's tied in with a man's own identity. And here's the deal. It's toilsome now. Yes, it's rewarding, but there's this other aspect to it where, okay, you're fighting rush hour traffic, and then you're spilling your coffee, and now you're late for the meeting, and now the client doesn't sign on the dotted line, and now your boss wants you to work late, so you work late. And then you rush home, and then you've got bills you have to pay, and the lawn that needs to be mowed, and the dog that has to be walked, and the toilet that has to be plunged, and then you crawl into bed, you set the alarm, you do it again tomorrow, and then you die. That's the cycle. That's the way it works. And men feel this stress and they feel this agony. It's part of the fall. But now, i got to go back real quickly to verse 15 because this is the most important thing we got to summarize all this with. I've already gone over time, but I need to make this point because it's important. Look back at verse 15. When the Lord says what he does, in the midst of all these consequences, the Lord brings about the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. It's here in verse 15. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelium. It just simply is a big word that means the first gospel that was ever preached. Here it is in verse 15. The Lord says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Now, if you have a pen or pencil handy, circle the word offspring, circle the word hers. Offspring and hers. It's the same Hebrew word. Both are the same Hebrew word. It's the word Zerah, Z-E-R-A. It translates seed. That's what Zera means, seed. God says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, Satan, your descendants, your demonic principalities, and I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. Her seed? Wait a minute. you have been to biology 101. We know that women don't produce seed. Women produce eggs. Men produce seed. Is this a mistake? Not at all. What God is saying here is He's speaking forward. It's a prophetic, messianic passage. It speaks to the day when Jesus Christ will be the seed of the woman. God's seed in the virgin of a young woman by the name of Mary will give birth to God in flesh. Galatians 3 tells us, Paul says, that He is the seed, capital S, of the promise. He's referring back to Genesis 3.15 and Galatians 3. He speaks of Jesus being the seed of the promise that he is the one who will, Colossians 2, when he's crucified on the cross, he will make a public spectacle of Satan and all the demonic principalities, that he will triumph over them by the cross. If you read on here in Genesis 3.15, God says, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, a lot of times I quote King James as supplemental, I teach from the NIV A lot of times, King James does a brilliant definition or explanation that is better sometimes than NIV. In this case, King James does not do the text service. If you have a King James Bible, instead of saying, he will crush your head, King James says, it will crush your head. But the pronoun is masculine, singular in the Hebrew. It is best translated, he will crush your head, because it's not an it. The passage refers to he. It's Jesus. Jesus will crush the authority and dominion of Satan over mankind by the cross. It says then, And you, Satan, will strike his heel. Literally, you will bruise him. You will inflict injury on him. How so? Because Satan will incite evil men to nail Jesus to the cross. And in that sense, he will suffer. But the joke is on Satan because Isaiah says that it was God's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. The whole redemptive plan was put in motion before the foundation of the earth. That Jesus on the cross would triumph over sin and death and crush the force of the enemy, having dominion over all the demonic principalities to reverse the curse of sin and death over you and me. Can I hear an amen? That's what Jesus did. Give him praise. He died on the cross for our sins. Now, Adam believes this promise. How do we know? That was the last verse I read, verse 20, where it says, Adam named his wife Eve. Now, up to this point, she was just known in the Hebrew as Isha, meaning woman. Now she gets a name. Adam names her Eve, which in Hebrew is Hava. It translates living. He says, I will name you Eve because you shall be the mother of all living. He sees the promise of God. He believes in this redemptive plan. He knows that Eve will give birth, who will give birth, who will give birth, who will give birth, till eventually a young virgin woman by the name of Mary will give birth to the seed of God, the promise of redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. And Adam says, I believe the promise of God. I'm going to name my wife Hava." She's the mother of all the living. And that promise to reverse the curse of sin and death, to forgive us of sins and to offer us eternal life, is still for you and me today.
1: Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection, the teaching ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. To learn more about this radio ministry, please visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc where you can download today's teaching or subscribe to our podcast. At cornerstoneconnection.cc, you'll also find information about all of our ministries, links to our Facebook page, Twitter feed, and more. We can be reached via email at info at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's info at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Or you can give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. When you contact us, please let us know how today's broadcast has blessed you feedback helps us know the Lord's direction for this ministry. Once again, you've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. On the next edition of Cornerstone Connection, Pastor Gary will continue taking us through the book of Genesis.